Everyone has a worldview. Whether you realize it or not, you have a way of looking through life. You have a, a lens, really, that you view life through. And there are different kinds of worldviews. Your worldview is mostly determined by your family upbringing. Uh, a, a, lot of, uh, uh, a lot of our worldviews are shaped from our family environment, culture, the values that were presented and taught, your education, your educational background, things you've studied, things you've gotten into, um, deeper things in philosophy, perhaps science, whatever it is, political science, these, all these types of education shape your worldview. And then ultimately, just the principles that you gravitate towards. And even if you think you don't gravitate towards any principles, there's people that say, well, I don't, gra I don't have any principles. <laughs> you, you, yes, you have some principles. <laughs> there's different kinds of worldviews. There's scientific worldview. There's a, a lens of looking through and looking at life purely from a scientific perspective. Then there's a different way of looking at things, a different worldview, perhaps a political worldview, and just looking at everything from a political standpoint. And then there are others, on and on and on and on and on. Different ways of kind of looking at the world, different philosophies, really. And then there is another kind of worldview, and let's call it a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is looking at things in light of the truths of the Bible. The Bible teaches principles, teaches truths, proclaims those things, whether it's in a prose or story or a, a teaching moment, or it could be just in the, in the historical context the formation of the nation of Israel, whatever it is, the, 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 the coming of the Messiah, the prophetic words of the, the prophets, all those things laid down, all those parts of the word of God given truths that are truths that can shape a worldview, a way of looking at the world. Perhaps the biggest part of having a biblical worldview, well, there, I don't know, you could start many different ways. Part of it is knowing that there's a God and knowing that we're man, kind, and we're not God, and that we have a big problem that we can't seem to figure out how to solve it on our own. And these begin to lay a foundation of beginning to have a proper worldview. Uh, so how is a biblical worldview, how, is it, uh, how does it come together? Well, we're going to start in the book of Romans here. We're going to look at this salutation. Now, just on Saturday night, we started the book of Colossians, which is also a letter of Paul, Romans being a letter of Paul. 
And so we're looking in literally back-to-back Bible studies at Pauline salutations, okay? So it's going to be a little bit of a a repeat, but we're going to hopefully deal with this in this way tonight, looking at it and setting it up with really the idea in Romans of laying out the reality of God, the reality of the plan of God, a proper diagnosis of the problem of man and God's solution. Amen? So if you're taking notes tonight, we're going to look at this. Um, the, the first point is this, the plan of God, the plan of God. Let's go back to the greeting um, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the first place to start, really, if you're going to look at this and you're going to look at it from the context of a biblical worldview, well, let's start with this. There is a God. There is a God. There is a God in heaven. There's a creator God. And he has a plan. If you're going to have remotely any part, any semblance of something that you could remotely call a biblical worldview, you're going to have those two points. That there is a God and he has a plan. Why? Because the Bible starts with telling us in the beginning God. I mean, it assumes the existence of God. It doesn't say, oh, hey, by the way, there is a God. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so God is, he's the creator, and he has a plan. And we've learned that as we went through Genesis. And we saw that God had a plan uh, to deal with the problem of man. He had a plan of really having a family, creating a, he had a heavenly family, the heavenly host, but he was going to have a family upon the earth as well. And when things went wrong there, God had a plan that was already set up before the foundation of the world called into action to deal with that. So God is the creator of the universe, the world, if you will, and You can look at it, and the world can seem to be, it can appear to be a cold, heartless place. You know, just, uh, we talked about it on, I believe, Saturday night. There can be this idea of just, you know, the survival of the fittest. That it's just, if you look at it, if you have just a purely scientific worldview, and you've been gone through into the educational uh, systems of our day, and I'm sure you've learned Darwinism. You've learned evolution. You've learned about the fossil record. And, of course, you probably didn't deal with the problems of the Cambrian explosion and other things. But you dealt with Darwinism and survival of the fittest. And because, let's just take that for a second. If survival of the fittest is the general principle of the world, then, yeah, it's a pretty cold, heartless 
dog-eat-dog world, right? Um, And you can just feel like there's no point to it all. And some people come to that point of view. Their worldview leads them to come to the point of view that there is no point. And this is actually called nihilism. And this is where you get to if you're an honest atheist. If you're a dishonest atheist, you won't get there. But if you're an honest atheist, you will get to nihilism. Because if there is no God, then nothing matters, nothing's important, there is no meaning. We're just here. And so that's nihilism. But tonight we're talking about a biblical worldview, not a scientific worldview, not a philosophical worldview. We're talking about a biblical worldview. And the Bible tells us that there is a God who has a plan. There's a God who uh, wants to have a family and wants to have relationship with his sons and daughters. And so we look at that. Upon reading the Bible and coming to this truth, we discover that there is a good God and that he has a plan. Now, the plan of God deals with dealing with the problem of man. Man has always tried to come up with a plan to fix the problems that we have. And if, you, if you're coming at that question from any other worldview, if you're coming at it from a scientific worldview, philosophical, sociological, whatever, whatever angle you're coming at it with, you may come up with a particular set of plans, a particular set of ideas of how to deal with how, how, do we, how do we do this? How do, how do we live together? How do we have a culture? How do we have a society that functions? How do, we, how do we do this? And all those philosophies are out there. And they're being articulated. They're being, uh, there's a group trying to get uh, other people to, to come over to that side and that way of thinking. And then there's a biblical worldview. And you have what's different about the biblical worldview is that it has a particular viewpoint. Let's put it this way, a diagnosis of the proper of the of the of the problem of man. And I'll put it this way. Jesus, who is God, and and, and Paul basically said that in the verses that we just read. Basically, Jesus, who was attested to us to be the Son of God by the power of the resurrection and the spirit of holiness, has attested this person, Jesus Christ, to be the Son of God. And Jesus Christ and Christianity provide the only real answers to the questions and the dilemma of man. A lot of political philosophies are attempts to deal with the apparent problems with mankind. Whether it be inequity or race or opportunity, many of these philosophies succeed or fail in their direct relation to their willingness to properly diagnose the problem of man. When you see something, I believe, when you see a philosophy, a political system, whatever you want to call it, when you see something that just grotesquely fails... I I would assert that there's a big problem with their diagnosis of what the real problem of man is. And 
That's why I think that Christianity, that's why I think Jesus offers the best diagnosis. I mean, he's the, he's the attending physician. And he comes and he comes to man and he says, how's it going today? Say, ah, <laughs> you know, let's look at this. Let's look at mankind. Well, here's the problem. Give it to us straight. Well, you've got this thing called sin. You've disobeyed God. You've sinned against the holy God. And that sin is brought in the, the wages of sin, which is death. And so we've been trying to deal with these problems. And people and governments and, and whatever, they've been trying to, to deal with the problem of man, the sin, the, 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 the sinful heart of man, and the, the death sentence upon man. And they're trying to skirt around it. How can we do this? How can we fix it over here? How can we, how can we live forever? Right? Without God. How can we live forever? How can we figure out how we can, die, uh, we can download our consciousness into like a robot? What you, it, it, this isn't sci-fi anymore. This is, they're literally... Wanting to do this. Why? Because man has, there is a death sentence. And how do we get around it? Well, there, there's a solution to that too. And it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives an accurate diagnosis of the human dilemma. Jesus provides the only real answer to the problem of sin. Jesus offer, he offers salvation, and it's based on a historical fact. It's based on a historical fact that he came into the world, he presented himself as a sinless man, being the representative, being the perfect representative for mankind, and then going to the cross and taking the sin of the world upon himself to therefore deal with the problem of, sin, of man. Jesus died on a cross during the Jews, Jewish Passover in Jerusalem. That's why he's our Passover lamb, right? The, you know, if you go back to the Passover, the whole thing was you had a lamb for a family. And they were instructed to kill the lamb at twilight and take the blood, put it upon the doorpost of the house. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He becomes, he's the perfect picture. He's the he's the. He's the Passover lamb, right? That happened on the 14th day of Nisan, the full moon. That's why I allow the, always the full moon to remind me of the sacrifice of Jesus every month. I don't know if you've ever kind of done that with you, but like the full moon is it's a reminder of when that happened. Not that it happened every month, but it did happen on a full moon. So, getting into the text of Romans, the, the text answers some important questions about where you have to go from there with your worldview. It answers the who, the what, and the why. 
the who, the what, and the why. If you're going to have a proper worldview that kind of accurately, you know, reflects reality and deals with the true problems, I think you've got to come, well, you've, you've got to at least deal with a couple of those questions. You might deny philosophically the legitimacy of one of those questions. You might say, well, who? Well, that's not a real question. But we'll find out with a biblical worldview that it is a real question. Paul said this. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his holy prophets, or his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself as the author of Romans, and he presents himself as a, as a who, as a person. And the biblical worldview actually gives us the ability to identify as a person. Because God, what's his name? See, God is actually not a name. God actually has a name. The biblical name for God, the God of the Bible, is Yahweh. And it's from, it's actually Y-H-W-H. And it's the tetragrammaton, the four letters, right? And it is, it's the idea of I am that I am, right? I am, the great I am, right? So God's name actually means I am, I exist, I exist. I'm a person. I'm God and I'm a person. And because God is I am, because God is an I, you are an I. Because that's the reference point. When you get into the, the subjects, if you want to break it down and get it in, into the, the, the topics of, and these are all really deep philosophical questions, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to go that far down into there tonight. But these are really profound questions. Because if all we are is uh, molecules in motion, I don't know if you've ever heard of that description of of uh, us. If all we are is molecules in motion, then, that, then, then there's no... How is it that we... How do we explain consciousness? How do we explain free will? How do we explain the idea of me to identify as a person and you to identify as a person? So, believe it or not, this all becomes a reality, and Ravi Zacharias actually makes this point better than I'm making it tonight in his book, The End of Reason. And I kind of stole his stuff and put it in the end of my book, okay? <laughs> because I love this point. Because we have the ultimate reference point in the I am, and therefore we can say in the first person, I, I. And believe it or not, 
The rest of the stuff, when you get into, into the, an understanding of the problem of the person, the, the, the individual responsibility of man, when you get into uh, what man has ultimately done and the diagnosis of the actual, uh, the, the depth of the fall and the rejection of the created order that God has made man with and the world with, you begin to see that it all comes back to, the, to some fundamental principles that we get from a biblical worldview. Number one, that there's a God. Number two, he has a plan. Number three, he's an I, and therefore you are an I. He's a person, and therefore you can be a person. You are a person. Amen? Yes. And it's interesting because this is very, when you get into this, this is there's very much of a current uh, deconstruction of a lot of the points, the finer points of biblical worldview. And if you're not up on your biblical worldview, you can get lost in the actual cultural dialogue and what's actually being deconstructed. So that's why this is important. So, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So, he answers the who question. The who question starts with who is God? And then who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Right? It's a good question. Who are you? Who are you? Well, you're a man, you're a you're a person. You're a person that's alive on the face of the earth right now. As far as I can tell, I mean, I'm looking out there at you. As far as I can tell, you're a person that's alive on the earth right now. And the question is, who are you? And this is a fundamental question that needs to be asked. And that's why, you know, I don't know why God has me on these kind of treks. You know, the the first book was answering that question, who is God? Who is Jesus? You know, and then the second question, I think, is who, who are you? Who are you without God? Who are, are you with God? And so looking at that, and so Paul answers the question. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's like saying, the word in the Greek there is, uh, is doulos, right? Doulos is, it's a, a lot of places it's bondservant or even servant. Um, but there are many, there are a few scholars, John MacArthur being one of them who would actually wrote a whole book on this particular word. I think it's called the, a slave of Christ because he says, no, that doesn't go far enough to really communicate what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now we, we, if you say the word slave today, I mean, you've, 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 <laughs> you've, uh, opened up another whole can of worms, right? You, you, why'd you go there? You shouldn't have gone there. But the reality is that the fact that Paul is saying he is a bondservant, a doulos, a literal slave of Christ, is that he actually is saying that he is the possession of Christ. Okay? So he's not saying, I just have a relationship with Christ. I have a relationship with God. He's literally saying in that, I am the Lord's. I am 
the personal possession of the Lord. And that's what it means to be a bondservant. To be a servant of Christ. And so you're a person, but you're also the possession of God. Man, we're already building up a powerful worldview here, aren't we? <laughs> we're already beginning to, you know, people need this today. Yes. Because I don't, I don't know how people like, it, it, you know, you look at where crazy ideas get launched and spouted and what it is because they are starting from, from incorrect premises, right? So Paul is called, he's a bondservant, and he's called to be an apostle. We talked a little bit about this on Saturday night, the idea of being sent, a sent one, and specifically Paul was was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And we talked about that verse in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Jesus speaking to Ananias said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things that he must suffer for my sake. So he's, he, he's Paul. He is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Why? Why? You've got to answer these questions. Who are you? What are you called to? And why? Why? And hopefully the answer is God's plan and God's will. So it comes back. It comes back to God, the existence of God, and the Existence and the reality of his plan, that he has a plan. To gather a people to himself. Paul does an amazing job of laying this out in the first chapter of Ephesians. In really what is the longest verse, single sentence, in Greek literature, ancient Greek literature. Which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 314 through 14. Um, anyways... <laughs> but basically, he summarizes and says, look, this is the amazing you know, will of God that we're talking about here. That, 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 that he has called you to be in him. That, that he set you apart to be in him. That he's called you from the foundation of the world to be in him, to be a part of his family, to be one of his. And this is ultimately the plan because when it's all said and done, when we've done everything that we can possibly do on this earth, when we've gone up and down this man's road and sat this many red lights and watched this many TV shows or whatever it is that we do, when it's all said and done, who are you and where are you headed? And are you his and are you headed to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever? I mean, and, and, and it really kind of boils down... And I tell you what, the crazier the world gets and the crazier the thing that, as it unfolds, and I just think, man, this is nuts. It's going wild. What's going to happen next? And I just start thinking of like, well, I guess if it all goes down, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heading in a good direction here. I'm going, I'm going right to be with you, Lord, you know? So it's not going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great thing. It's going to be a great thing. But that's the question that each and every person has to has to come to grips with. 
and I liked it. I was at a concert on Saturday night, Sunday night, and uh, one of the guys in the band, he said, and this is how he put it, he said, this flesh and bones is a rental. <laughs> and I just liked how he put that. I never thought about, like, you know, you, uh, guys, you know, we go and when we got to go get a tux, right? So we got to go get fitted for, a, for, a, rent, for a, a, a tux rental, right? And you go, oh, yeah. And when you're all done with it, just, you know, take off your pants and your coat and wad it all up and throw it in that bag and zip it up and throw it in the car or whatever it is you do, right? Is that what you do? No, no, you actually literally you hang it back up on the hanger and no, you just wad it back up in that bag. This flesh and bones is a rental. Now some you know, the older we get, the more we feel great about that sentence. We're ready to turn it in. Then you walk by someone else, some other some other guy. You know, just abs and guns and, you know, <laughs> he's like, he's not there yet. He's not. He's still denying himself the pleasures of pizza. <laughs> right? So here's how it would go. You know, here's how you'd say it in the Greek. Paulos doulos Christos. Paul, a, a servant of Christ. And so hopefully we can, you know, kind of create our own Greek sentence there. You know, can you say, you know. Well, yeah, Carlos. Carlos. Yeah, I'd have to go to the Spanish, right? Charlos, Carlos. I go, I, I, I'll mix in the, 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 the Spanish with the Greek, and then I'll come up with a nice sentence. Carlos Dulos Christos, right? Charles also. Yeah, you can, you can actually do it. Chris can actually do it. Christos Dulos Christos. Something like that. So anyways, write your own little sentence down there. Who are you? What are you? Why are you? And what is the reference point for who you, who you are in this world? And, um, and then we'll close with this tonight, the perfection of God. Let's go back to the text, verse 5. He says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, among whom you are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the plan of God, and then there's the perfection of God. The perfection of God, or maybe a better way to say that, I wrote it like that because it was alliterated with plan of God. So the plan of God, the perfection of God. But really the holiness of God. Really. Okay? Um, we're called to Jesus Christ, called to be saints, Paul says. We're called to be hagioi, right? Which is, it's translated saints, and it's, it does have that idea of what, when you think of a saint, now, we're not talking about, when Paul's talking about hagioi here, he's not talking about 
what the Catholic Church is talking about when they're saying like, you know, St. Michael and St. Matthew and St. Timothy and St. Bernard or whatever, you know. <laughs> okay? Because this has nothing to do with a decree of mankind or a decree of a council of men. It, it has to do with positionally who you are in Christ and that you have gone from being kind of lost in the, the crowd, the sea of humanity, lost without Christ, and called to come out of the world, of that place, of that world, and called to be with the Lord and be alongside of him and to share in his holiness, to share in his separateness, to share in this status of being what really is a, the Old Testament term that Paul's referring to here, which is the holy ones. The holy ones. So you have the holy ones, which in the Old Testament is a reference to and specifically a term denoting the, the holy ones of the heavenly hosts. So before there was mankind on the earth, there was God and the heavenly host, right? Because even the book of Job tells us that when, when God laid the foundation, the cornerstone of the earth, the sons of God shouted for joy, right? So, so they were there. They were just like, you know, whoa, look at this. Wow, what amazing. You know, no, it was much, much more enthusiastic than that. <laughs> but you have these holy ones. You have these sons of God, these Beneha Elohim, right? So we're literally called to be a part of that status, a part of the sons of God. We are given the right to be called sons of God. We're given the right to become sons of God by believing and receiving his name, right? Isn't this what John says in the first chapter of his gospel? To, to as many as received him and believed upon his name, he has given them the right to become the sons of God. Yes. And that's how you become a son of God. You become a son of God by believing and receiving Receiving and believing upon him, trusting him. And as it is for you, there are no other gods. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's it. When I wake up every day, I'm serving the Lord. There's, there's a myriad of other things that people could live for. There's a myriad of other philosophies, vain philosophies that they could, they could pattern their lives after. But at the end of the day, for me, I have chosen to follow the Lord. I've, I've chosen to believe upon him, to receive him, to trust in him, to have a, a, just a severe allegiance to the, to the God of heaven. Amen? And, uh, and that's what it's all about. Now, there is an aspect of the holiness, right? When we think of holiness, we think of rightness, we think of righteous living, Right? 
And that's a part of it, but I want, I want you to see it as a kind of a double-edged sword. On this side, you see this separateness called to be a part of this group, this family that God is, that is making, that he's making, that he's gathering from the four corners of the earth a family, right? And we're called to walk in his righteous, right living as well. And so we're called to be saints. We're called to be saints. We're called to be holy. Jesus said, uh, be holy as my Father is holy, as I am holy, right? And you think, well, how can, how can we really do that? Well, we can do that by believing and receiving. <laughs> and learning through the grace of God given to us how to, how to walk and learning how to walk in a relationship with God that understands that he's, the, that he's a forgiver, that he forgives us and that he cleanses us from unrighteousness and he causes us to walk in uprightness. Amen? And then one more, one more point tonight, the peace of God. This is how Paul ends the salutations. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a number of different ways you could, you could, you could talk about the grace of God. You could talk about the peace of God. But there's the grace of God that brings us to the peace of God. I said this on Saturday night because Paul always says this grace and peace to grace and peace from God our Father, or grace and peace to you, or however, you know. But it's always in that order, right? It's always grace and peace. It's always grace first, peace second. Because you can't have the you can't have the peace of God, you can't have peace with God until you first receive the grace of God. And the way that you receive the grace of God is by humbling yourself before God realizing that you've fallen short of the glory and that God has properly diagnosed that problem with you and that he has the ultimate solution for that issue. And if you'll come to him, if you'll humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up and he will bring you to that place of right standing, right relationship, and sonship. Amen? And then you come into the peace of God that passes all understanding. Peace with God. Wow, there's a number of different ways you could kind of kind of tie it on on that, wrap a bow on it. One of the ways you could do it in the five Levitical sacrifices, you have the middle one, the peace offering. Right? The peace offering was the offering that you brought. You brought the animal. You brought the animal of the peace offering. And it was the one offering where you would come. It was kind of like, a, this is how I kind of put it in my book. It's, it's like you came prepared to have a barbecue with God because there would be a portion for the Lord and there would be a portion for you to eat. And because the peace offering establishes peace with God, it establishes the, the right standing for you to actually sit down and have a meal with the Lord. Yes. Because before that, we couldn't even approach. Can't come in to the Holy of Holies. You can't approach the throne. There was a veil in front of it. 
God's throne was inside the room, in the inner room, with a veil in front of it that says you can't come in here. In fact, only one person, one time a year, can ever come in here. And some of them people die, and so we tie a rope around his ankle in case he keels over and we can drag him out. That's how it was because of that type of thing. But God, through Christ, he became the veil. He became the veil, the mediator between God and man. And when Jesus hung on the cross and he gave up his spirit, at that moment, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Oh, man, I would have loved to have a real honest conversation. Go back in time in a time machine. Have an honest conversation with one of the Sadducees, the priest. What, what, what do you think about that when the veil tore? You know, there, boom, there's the holy of holies. There's the whole thing just sitting there. What are we going to do? We learn that from the New Testament that the veil is the veil of his flesh. When, the, when, the, when his flesh was torn, when he gave up his spirit, the veil was torn and therefore opening up the way. The direct access to the Lord, to the Father, to the throne of grace so that we can come and we can now receive the grace. We can come through the person of Christ, the torn veil. We can come into the Holy of Holies, we can approach the throne of grace, and when we receive the grace, we can come into the peace of God. Yeah. We can sit down because isn't that what Jesus told the church of Laodicea? He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice, I will, and, and opens the door, I will come in. And what will I do? What will he do? I'll, I'll, I'll sit down, sit down and have, have, have a dinner. I mean, I think that's one of the greatest thoughts that the Lord Jesus knocking at the, at the door of our hearts simply wanting to come in and, and, and sup with us, to dine with us. He wants us to be able to have peace with him and so he came and gave up his, his own life, his own body. He sacrificed his own flesh so that we could have peace with God. And what kind of peace? The peace that passes understanding in the Hebrew, it was the shalom. It's, it's, a, it's a permeating peace. It's not a temporary, like everything's kind of calm right now, but let's hold on and wait and see what happens. <laughs> it's an absolute shalom. It's a peace that permeates through everything of who we are into every area of our lives. And that's what we need. And that's what the world doesn't have. And that's what... We have in Christ, and that's what we have come to understand that we have as we have a biblical worldview.